You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Uh, Let me just pray, open up our time uh, with prayer and and ask that the Lord would uh, open our hearts to what he's going to teach us from his scripture today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your grace and your mercy, you gave us this message that we could be saved, that we could be the children of God. Lord, may the wonder and the grandeur of this grab hold of our hearts, that, we, that, it'll, that it'll just burst from us, Lord, to those around us, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the city. And Lord, would you use this message, which is the only hope of the world, to bring people into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So we ask, Lord, teach us from your word today. And would you, uh, would you touch our hearts with what you have to say? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 14. So we're in Acts chapter 14. We're carrying on our, our series entitled Naval Gazing. Once again, I find myself at a bit of a loss as to why Aaron chose the term navel-gazing. I have not seen or heard so far in any of these stories anything to do with ships, boats, sea, ships chandlers, if that's your, if that's your occupation. Um, you know, however, today we are going to remedy that. Okay, because in verse 25 of chapter 14, it says, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. And with all that water, the docks, the harbors, the ships, even though it's not directly stated in the text, I'm pretty sure there was some navel gazing going on. Uh, Seriously, though. Before we jump into the passage, we probably just need a little quick uh, update as to where we are in the story. Uh, Last week, we found the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia, which is modern-day Turkey. They preached a sermon in a synagogue, and many people were converted. But there was a contingent of men at the synagogue who stirred up the crowd, and they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. From there, they went on to Iconium, a city about 150 kilometers away. And again, they preached the gospel in another Jewish synagogue, and many people were saved, both Jews and Greeks. And again, they found themselves being violently opposed, and the gospel, um, I'm sorry, they they found themselves uh, violently being opposed, and there was actually a plot to stone them. So these people were going to execute Paul and Barnabas. And so they fled there, but they continued to preach the gospel as they went along. And they arrived at Lystra, again, about sort of 20, 30 kilometers down the road. And that's where we pick up the story today. So we're at Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 28. So strap on your seatbelt. It's a long passage of scripture, and we're going to work our way right through it. So now at Lystra, verse 8, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said, 
in a loud voice, stand up on your, stand straight on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We, are, we also are men of like nature to you, and we bring to you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. In, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they were scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews, and you know, you can uh, cue the... Uh, dark music of the empire. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they were commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and declared the, what God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Last week... Aaron mentioned that he loves a good story, and I agree that, that it's, it's universal amongst all people that, uh, you know, uh, uh, no matter your age or, or, or where you're from, who doesn't love a good story? But sometimes I find it easier to tell a story than I do to preach a sermon about a story. And Aaron and I often banter back and forth, hey, you know, what, what, what angle are you going to take? You know, how are you going to approach it? And you want to be true to the overall theme of the series, which is navel-gazing, but you're constrained by the text. And so looking at this and, and looking at this, I, you know, I, I pray a prayer that goes something like this, Lord, it's your word, and it's your church, and the message belongs to you. And so I pray and ask that the message be yours and not mine. So this week, as I was, I was looking at this, I feel like the Lord answered the prayer in sort of two very specific ways. One, in, in that there was, a, there was kind of a verse, little phrase there that just kind of stuck in my mind. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I just kept kind of, you know, 
rolling around in there. But I really didn't know how to kind of approach it or how to talk about it. And then Ruth gave me a book and said, you know, by Paul Tripp, and she said, you know, you got to read this book or at least this chapter here. I think you're going to find it really helpful. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to read the chapter. And out of that, God gave me a firm track to run on. And I keep, came, you know, and, 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 and I, I love the way that God answers prayer, the faithfulness of God. You know, we've talked about the, the faithfulness of people, but God is so much more faithful than, than we can ever be. And as I was looking at this passage this week, I just couldn't, couldn't get out of my head the words where Paul says that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? They were going to sacrifice to him. We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. That you should turn from these vain things. It's not the kind of language that we use. You know, you see somebody doing something. I want you to turn from those vain things, please, and, you know, and, and do something more important. And I always find it interesting, I don't know how, about you and what triggers your memories, maybe it's just because I'm old, that you know, certain things will trigger my memory. And, 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 and when I was thinking about that, turn from these vain things to a living God, my mind was cast back like 30 years to a corporate boardroom in a multinational company, which I found myself sitting in uh, at, a, at a meeting. It was being run by the sales manager at the time. And it was a time when the Lord was kind of really getting hold of my life. He was really, really working on me through his word and no doubt answering Ruth's prayers over me. And, the, and, and it's funny that Aaron said, you know, he was in a meeting and they said, what's the goal of your life? Because that was the question. What is the goal in your life? And, and this sales manager is a fiery guy and that's all I remember about him. And that and what he said, which was so ludicrous that, you know, I had to dismiss it immediately. He said, you know, you gotta, you gotta put your goal in front of you. You gotta, the, you gotta have that written in stone. He goes, I have my goal written above my bed. I don't know what it was. I can't even remember what it was. Maybe it was like to make a million dollars or something. Back in that time, uh, 30 years ago, it was a lot of money, right? Now it's pocket change. But, um, you know, I, I, don't, I can't, don't remember what it was. He's like, but it's written above my bed so that when I go to bed, I can see it. And when I wake up first thing in the morning and I can see it. And I remember sitting there in the meeting, and this is what sort of triggered my memory about this vain thing idea, was I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I really just want to follow the Lord. The Lord was just kind of in that port. He was really getting hold of my heart, and it was so crystal clear to me. I just want to follow the Lord. And, of course, when it came around to me, you know, to my shame, I, was, I didn't bravely blurt out, I, I want to follow the Lord. I just kind of went, oh, I mumbled something, I don't know. And, you know, probably out of fear, no doubt. But here's what I can tell you. I looked it up. Gestetner, the company that I worked for, 
no longer exists. <laughs> you know? Like so many human institutions, Gestetner, it's gone. Microsoft one day is going to disappear. Elon Musk is going to disappear. Every human endeavor is going to cease, but there's a living God who still reigns in the heavens. Can I at least get an amen to that? <laughs> Paul makes it clear to us that there's a, there's a distinction between what he calls vain things and what I'm sure he would call the main thing. The first thing is the main thing. It's the good news. It's the message of the gospel. We bring good news. Good news about a living God who is the creator of everything. The living God that broke through time and space in the person of Jesus Christ who became a man and lived among us, died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's the message that Paul proclaimed everywhere he went. Because back on that road to Damascus, and if you want to hear the sermon on that, you've got to go back into the archives of Restoration Church when we did the first half of Acts. But back on that road to Damascus, Paul had a life-changing personal encounter with Jesus and it changed everything. He was resolutely heading in one direction, absolutely convinced that he was going in the right direction. And then the Lord came in and he grabbed hold of his life and he turned him completely around. And his heart was changed forever. And now equipped with the good news of the gospel, Paul is committed to sharing it everywhere and with everyone he encountered. So why? Well, it could be argued that that he was under a direct commission from the Lord, and he was, because the Lord said, you're going to be my chosen instrument to take this message to the Gentiles. And I think that's certainly true, but I, I think it's more than that, because Paul saw the supreme value of the gospel. It was to be prized above all things, because it displayed the glorious splendor of a living and sovereign God. The gospel is the internal and unchanging truth of God, a God who is glorious, full of grace and wisdom and power and faithfulness and patience and kindness and mercy and love. And you don't have to get very far in Paul's letters if you, if you read through that part of the New Testament. You don't have to get very far in his letters that he wrote to the, he wrote to the churches in the first century to find out how he felt about the gospel. And I thought it's worthwhile for us to just, to just read some of the stuff that he said about it. Because you can capture the, the, the feeling that Paul had towards it. Listen to what he says. Verse, Romans, Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Ephesians chapter 1, he says this, I do not cease to give thank, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the high eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come and has put every, all things under his feet. And he gave him his head over the, all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feel, fills all in all. Philippians chapter 3, and I've referred to this before, but I, I just can't help myself because it is so profound. Indeed, I have found everything to be, a, a, as I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value and worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom... For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And those are just a couple of examples from the writings of Paul about how grand the gospel is, about what he thought about it. And it wasn't just Paul who marveled at it. You know, we look at the words of the Apostle Peter, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, if you, if you don't understand how Paul felt about the gospel, how, God, how, how Paul spoke about the gospel, his complete preoccupation and passion for the message, you can't make sense of Acts chapter 14. It just doesn't make sense. Verse 5, when there was an attempt by both the Jew Gentiles and the Jews and their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it. They fled to Lystra and Derby, Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul, these guys, they're, they're plotting to kill you. They're plotting to stone you. Oh, all right, well, eh, maybe we better get out of here. I mean, that's what I'd be doing, right? Wouldn't you? You're like, ah, self-preservation, got to get out of here. So, he, so off he goes and, you know, home, right? Well, I think maybe it's time for me to change occupations. You know, think uh, this gospel thing isn't... No, it's like, he was like, well, I'll go here. Well, they, they don't want to hear it. 
I think it says they shook their dust, the dust off their feet, meaning, well, fine, we're not even going to take dust with us. We'll just shake it off, right? And off they go, and they keep preaching the gospel. The threat of violence could not deter them from preaching the gospel. They were compelled by the beauty and the grandeur of the message. And they get to Lystra and they preach the gospel. And God gives them the power to heal a man crippled from birth. And if you, and if you look at the story there, you know, it, you know, it's my firm belief that it wasn't just kind of a physical healing. But it was also a spiritual healing. Because it says that Paul, he was listening to the message that Paul was preaching. Paul wasn't preaching, hey, if you... If you if you trust in Jesus, you'll get well, right? You, you know, we'll, we'll, everything will be okay. You'll be healed, right? That wasn't the message. The message was about salvation. And it says that Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. And that doesn't mean that if you have more faith, you can be healed. It means that he was healed spiritually. But the crowd, all they saw was the miracle. And they began to imagine that Paul and Barnabas are are Zeus and Hermes. Hermes was the, Zeus was the, the head god, small g, of course, was the head god, and, and uh, Hermes was kind of the main spokesperson, I guess, for, for the Greek gods. And again, you can shake your head at Paul's actions because they were handed the golden ticket. Paul and Barnabas could have totally exploited that situation. They could have used it to their advantage. They could have been treated like gods. Like, think about that. The city would have rolled out the red carpet. They would have gotten whatever they wanted, the keys of the city, wealth, honor, all kinds of things. They had it made. You know, if it had gone that way, can you just imagine sort of running into Paul at a, at a social setting? You know, like, you know, as, as sort of typical of our Canadian, yeah, so what do you do? Well, I'm, well, let me show you my card, right? And he pulls out his card, it's a Saul of Tarsus, Greek god, you know? It's like I got the dream job, you know? I got it all. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd. You can just, you can just imagine, like, ah, what are you guys doing? Stop, stop. No, 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 no. Right? Tearing your clothes was kind of a represent, you know, that you were upset, that you were, you know, they would do it as a, as a sign of, of repentance. Lord, you know, oh, I can't believe that I'm such a sinner. You know, or if you were upset, I mean, the high priest did that too when Jesus said, you know, you are going to see that I, you know, that I'm the Son of God. And the, High priest tears his clothes. Are you kidding me? You know, it's kind of like Paul. Is like Paul, he's, he's appalled that they're... It's kind of cool. Paul was appalled. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Sorry. It's where my mind goes, folks. I apologize. You know. <laughs> uh, yes, another good one. Thank you. <laughs> Someone show that man the door. Um, uh, They wanted to elevate them. And they tore their clothes. They said, stop. Stop this vain nonsense. And later Paul is attacked. And he is actually stoned this time. And they drag him out for dead. Like, 
you have to be in rough shape for, for them to suppose that you're dead. You know, I'm trying to imagine this and I'm thinking, okay, you know, is this a miracle? Like, is this a miracle where Paul gets up? You know, I, I don't really know. It doesn't say that it was a miracle that Paul got up. But I mean, I'm st- they're standing there. I mean, what do you look like after people have pummeled you with rocks? You're probably black and blue and bloodied. And, you know, the apostles are all kind of, you know, the, the, the disciples are sort of standing around. And they're like, ah, uh, so what now? Like, this is not good. And Paul gets up and it says, the next day he goes to Derby. Well, Derby's a hundred kilometers down the road. Like, I, I don't know what it looked like with Paul. You know, were they, was he kind of, you know, I, I twisted my ankle this past week walking Winston. I stepped into a little bit of a dip on, beside the sidewalk and hit the, hit the, fortunately landed on the grass like a ton of bricks and bruised my ribs and, you know, I'm hobbling around this week. That was just a little twisted ankle. I wasn't, I mean, Paul was stoned. Like, was he kind of hobbling around? He's going, man, that's it. I'm out of here. I am, I am not, I am not going to speak the name of Jesus anymore. This is just not worth it. Except that's not what happened. He's hobbling along and he's going, we got to get to the next place so we can tell people about the wonderful news of the gospel. Because, and you know, and I just always ask the question, why, right? Why, what would compel somebody to do that? Why would he do it? You know, because he had personally experienced the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ firsthand. He had a personal encounter with Christ. Not that kind of one and done thing, you know, oh yeah, 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 no, I I believe in Jesus. I, I, I prayed the prayer. I'm saved. It was a daily, ongoing, and growing relationship of love that led him to worship the risen king. See, Paul was either, either he was crazy, you know, not, not all there, or he was really on to something. Like he knew God in a special way that not even a severe beat down could stop him or shut him up. Paul's own words to Timothy, he says this, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what, until that day, what has been entrusted to him. You see, Paul, it wasn't just the message. He says, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able. It was Paul's message. But here's the wonder of it. It's our message too. It belongs to us. God's glory has not diminished even a little bit since Paul first preached this message. The gospel is still the good news. And it remains the only hope for a lost and dying world. On one side you have the main thing. And on the other side, you got the vain things that Paul talked about. 
I always look for, I always go to Webster or Cambridge Dictionary just to kind of look up and see what does vain mean? Vain means this, producing no result. Useless, marked by futility or ineffectualness, having no real value, worthless. Hmm. wonder how much of our lives we occupy with vain things, worthless things, things of no real value, things marked by futility. Once again, I'll turn you, we've got to turn to the teaching of Paul. Romans chapter 1, he says this, For although they knew God, referring to men, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, vain things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, the spirit of the age that we are now living in Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We live in a world that serves a creature rather than the Creator. Who's this, this creature that Paul is talking about? It's me. It's you. It's mankind. Our world worships and serves self above everything else, including the Creator. In Paul's day, he was faced with those who believed the lie, uh, you know, the superstitious notion that God's small g, God's could, could come down and walk around with men. Today, we believe the opposite of that, that man can elevate himself to the place of God. In the, poem, in the words of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I know what's best for me. And I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. And the sad truth is that, that it, it's not just out there. It's not just out there. It's made significant inroads into the church here in Canada it's continuing to gain traction because we've lost sight of the majesty and glory of God and the absolute wonder of the gospel. Last year, as we, uh, in, our, in our small groups, we went through that book, Be Thou My Vision, and in the back of it is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made for the glory of God. We were create, he created us for, for worship. Worship is hardwired into our DNA. 
It's the way we were designed. We were made to worship, but we were made to worship God. And it's so intrinsic to who we are that if we do not worship God, we will find something to worship. Not, not too many weeks ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who remember, you know, there's a lot of commotion going out in the, in the, in the courtyard as the supercars pulled up. The supercars, you know? And the courtyard filled up with people worshiping at the altar of Ferrari and Lamborghini and Porsche and whatever else there was. And I'm sure there might have been some people in here who were like, Woo, this is really boring. I wish I was out there. You know, we've 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 elevated ourselves, you know. I like, I like football, you know, and, and I, I'm a sports guy. I, I admit I probably waste way too much time watching sports and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of it. But I've noticed that, that over my lifetime, the whole thing, you know, around sports celebrations, you know, has changed. It's like you watch, you watch, you know, you watch an NFL game for like five minutes and somebody make, you know, somebody makes a tackle and they're you know and they're like and, and all of these little gesticulations that they make right like i have just done the greatest thing and we're like oh did you see that tackle that was awesome was it awesome all he did was the the faster guy grabbed the slower guy around his legs with his arms until he fell down. It's not like he cured cancer. It's not like, you know, world peace, but we worship that. You watch the guy score the goal and he's, you know, I don't know what they do with their sticks, you know, they're making all... You put the puck in the net. This is what we're worshiping, folks. Do we not see the, the, the tragedy in it? You know, I, I, I've heard that, you know, recently that consumer debt in Canada is higher than it's ever been. You know what that means? There's a whole bunch of people out there trying to stuff things into their lives. If they can just get that next thing, and, and I'll put it on credit or what, however I have to do it or pay for it over time. As long as I can get it now, I'll be happy. But the problem is, is that that's why debt keeps going up. Because they're never happy. They just keep worshiping the next thing. And I'm not saying it in a judgmental way because, you know what, I'm just as guilty as the next person of misplaced worship. But don't miss the significance of Paul's actions in this passage. When he found Christ, or rather when Christ found him, he knew that he had found the main thing the person worthy of his worship and the message that was worth giving his life up for. And we have that too. Why would you even bother looking anywhere else? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man, and he, and he, and he sort of tells in a story form, he says, you know, he's like a guy who's out walking through the fields. You know, he's on, a, he's on a 
Sunday walk, and he finds a treasure that nobody knew about that was hidden. And he goes back and he's like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he sells everything. He sells everything so that he can go and buy that field. And it says, in his joy, he sells everything. In Christ, we have everything. It's through Christ that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's through his death, burial, and resurrection that we become the very children of God. We are in Christ. The greatest and most significant relationship that we'll ever experience. As followers of Jesus, we have access to the very throne room of the almighty creator of everything. Through his word, we have insight into the deepest things that this world and this life have to offer. Through his glorious power, we have the promise that not only in this life, but in the life to come, when God makes everything new and everything right again. What could possibly be better than that? You know, Paul wasn't mad, he wasn't crazy. He made a decision that he was going to commit his life to proclaiming the message because he knew that the message was the main thing. It's a challenge before us today. Are you going to choose the main thing? Are you going to muck about with the vain things? We have a glorious God robed in splendor and majesty and, and it's a transcendent message that the world desperately needs to hear. Jesus said, what, is it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Let's pray. Lord, would you reinvigorate our understanding of the gospel. Would we see the transcendence of the message, the glory and the splendor of your character as displayed in Jesus Christ? Lord, would we choose the main thing over and above the main things? Would we be that kind of people? Lord, we so need uh, to be pulled up by you back into that wonderful message. And we pray these things in Jesus, in his name, amen.